Which bone in the skull does not articulate with another bone via a suture? Instead, the bone in question has a synovial joint with an articulating disc that is prone to dysfunction. Which bone contains around 10 teeth in childhood and around 14 to 16 teeth as an adult and you mature? Need another clue? The bone in question has a body, a crown, a knuckle, or at least a Greco-Roman translation of these words. Have you guessed it yet? That heading really is a giveaway, right? The answer is, of course, the mandible. And if the anatomy of this is something you want to learn more about, or perhaps you simply want to revise what you already know, then listen in as we explore the anatomy of the mandible. This week then, let's explore the anatomy of the human mandible, the bone whose articulation allows you to enjoy the festive treats you should definitely gorge yourself upon this holiday season. Let's explore its anatomical features, its articulation, and add in a smidge of clinical relevance right at the end. Now as bones in the skull go, the mandible is a very interesting one. The mandible is a sickle horseshoe shaped bone with named parts and it is worth learning these if you're a clinician, as mandibular fractures are often termed by the fracture site. Similar to the pelvis, or perhaps the more familiar polo mint suite, it is rare that we see a single mandibular fracture, as these ring-like structures tend to break in two areas. So watch out for that one. Now, let's name the parts then. Despite being a single bone, the mandible is often divided into two symmetrical subparts, or hemimandibles, by some textbooks. At the connecting centre, we see the colloquially referred to chin, and this is often termed the symphysis, as though the two hemimandibles were adjoined at this point. Anatomically, we turn this as the mental protuberance, which for me always inspires images of Rodin's sculpture The Thinker, resting his hand on his chin to contemplate the meaning of life, using his mental capacity to do so. In reality, it is likely these have a different etymological origin, but it may help you remember why this is called the mental protuberance. Let's name the subparts of the mandible then. Starting at the chin and moving outwards laterally, we next encounter the rectangular-shaped block of bone called the body of the mandible. Within this bone, we see a small hole termed the mental foramen, and it is here a branch of the trigeminal nerve passes through the hole and traverses the cortex of the bone in a tunnel called the mandibular canal. This conveys sensation from the hole of the mandible and the lower teeth. The nerve is termed the mental nerve as it passes through the hole, and it changes its name to the inferior alveolar nerve despite being the same bit of nerve. It then changes its name to the mandibular nerve, and this of course is the third branch of the trigeminal nerve. You have a superior counterpart in the upper teeth called the superior alveolar nerve, and alveolar will become apparent why it's called that very shortly. Continuing our journey lateral to the body, we see the shape of the mandible now changes direction, hence its name, the angle of the mandible. The angle is bordered superiorly by the ramus, which literally means branch, and it is the superior border of the ramus we see the two branching named parts of the mandible. The anterior one is termed the coronoid process, meaning crown-like, and the posterior is termed the condyle, meaning knuckle. The space between them is the mandibular notch. It is important to note that only the condyle is part of the temporomandibular joint, or your jaw joint, but we'll come to that. To finish off the parts of the mandible then, let's talk about the teeth-bearing part. Your mandibular teeth sit within the part of the mandible termed the alveolar ridge. There are other names, but this is the one that most clinicians use. You may be more familiar with alveolar referring to air sacs within the lungs, but if you look at the developing skull, you'll see unerupted teeth look like small sacs, hence the name alveolar. The alveolar bones have two plates, or cortices, and these sit either side of the tooth. A thicker outer cortex is named the buccal or buccal plate, as it is closer to the cheek and lower lip, 
and the thinner internal lingual plate sits closer to the tongue, hence lingual. The teeth are, of course, made of enamel, not bone, and we'll cover their anatomy in more detail in a future podcast. What I have to mention here, though, is the fibrous mobile peg and socket joints they form to keep them in the mandible itself, the fantastically named gomphosis. What a beautiful name. In life, the alveolar ridge is covered in thick mucosa, termed gingiva, and as you age, this gingiva may recede. As such, the teeth appear to grow, hence the idiom becoming long in the tooth. Also, when teeth fall out, the alveolar bone reabsorbs, without the teeth to support it. Take a look at an edentula skull on Google Images, and you will see the mandible comes rather thin without teeth. Of course, your upper maxillary teeth articulate with the lower mandibular teeth, and this is termed an occlusion. This can be classed depending on how your teeth come together, but we won't get into that here. However, in trauma, a change in occlusion, or the way your teeth come together, may indicate a fracture, and so that bit of anatomy is an important term. The temporomandibular joint then. Despite the dental articulation, the true bony articulation occurs between the head of the condyle of the mandible and the temporal bone, specifically an indent called the mandibular fossa. The joint is synovial, containing synovial fluid, and is also a hinge joint, allowing for depression and elevation of the mandible. However, it doesn't stop there. The joint is so much cooler than that. Within the joint capsule is an articular disc, which allows the mandible to slide and the jaw to be protruded or to point your chin out and retracted, and also laterally deviated. Don't tell me you're not actually doing that as you're listening to this, right? A trade-off with this unique mobility, of course, is temporomandibular joint dysfunction, which is a bit of an umbrella term usually resulting in pain and reduced mobility with the underlying etiology ranging from muscle spasms to disc displacement and subsequent lock-in of the jaw. Okay, finally, speaking of muscles, the muscles that control the movement of the mandible during chewing are called the muscles of mastication, which we will do a deep dive into in a future podcast. They attach at various points of the mandible and control the movements mentioned above. Where they attach, they leave a mark, and the most obvious of these is the coronoid process. Much more to come for these on future podcasts because it is a lovely bit of anatomy. Okay, and that's the mandible. We spoke about its named parts. We said that it is commonly fractured and that the joint that connects it all to the actual skull is the temporomandibular joint, a common area for dysfunction. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is Chris Summers and I will catch you in a couple of weeks on Dissectable Me.